Welcome, everybody, to The Robbie Morton Show. Um, my guest today has been a guest on numerous episodes, Mark Underwood, a.k.a. Thunderwood. How you doing today, Mark? Doing pretty good. All right, so our subject today, we've talked about it many times, uh, but we've never gone in-depth the way that we're going to today. Today, we're going to be talking about Star Wars. Uh, we're going to be talking about different parts of Star Wars and what we want to cover. So up first, we're going to be talking about what Star Wars teaches us about technology. Um, in my opinion, Luke had it the right way. He pushes away the screen and goes with the Force from time to time. The example that I'm trying to give is when Luke is de about to destroy the Death Star, he stops uses technology and he uses his instincts and guidance along with the help of Obi-Wan. Just like he doesn't need to... He does. He can. Uh, he can still defend himself with the lightsaber when the helmet is on. When that blast shield is down or whatever on the helmet, he used the force. He could see with the force, and he was doing the same thing on the Death Star run. Agreed. Uh, so you kind of started off as a kid. I was in awe of George Lucas's iconic sounds and images. Seeing the Death Star blow up, what we just talked about, and all the special effects that were used in a movie made in 1977. That's over 40 years ago. Um, it was called Star Wars. The Star Wars. The Star Wars, because it was not given the title A New Hope until after the release. Uh, to me, that movie stood out technology-wise, storyline-wise, and just overall creative uh, creativity to almost anything that even now in 2019 that I can think of. Yeah. I'm just going to agree. Yeah. Uh, to me, Star Wars is still the fast moving and fun space adventure it was back in the day. The John Williams score alone is uh, powerful enough and delightful to cheer up the gloomiest of viewers and the special effects are better than even some green screen movies that are used today. Do you just, agree? There's just something about that uh, practical effects that just makes it so believable. Agreed. See, the thing that I liked about it is yes, they did have stuff that needed to be blue screened and green screened, uh, certain battles that took place and certain special effects, but it didn't feel like it. I look at movies now, I'm able to tell, oh, that's computer generated, that's not. Mm -hmm. To me, this was all pioneering technology. Definitely. I think the Star Wars movies are deep and have many layers. Uh, one of the layers I was thinking about when putting the show together with you, Thunderwood, mm -hmm. was the nature versus technology, which is what this uh, this particular uh, part of the show is going to be about. Uh, the technology thread that runs through the movie. Star Wars obviously stands out with technology. You see it manifested in the drones, the droids, the force fields, the holograms, the tractor beams, the space battles, and of course, my favorite thing, the lightsabers. The lightsabers? swords. Lightsabers. It is the tool of the Jedi. Yes. All right, then. Well, end of the Sith, but mainly of the Jedi. They're basically dark Jedi. So. <laughs> and everybody is tracking everybody with intergalactic navigation systems. Uh, from that, I'm talking about when the Death Star puts the tracking device on the Millennium Falcon that leads them to Yavin, which then takes place of the battle. Yeah, the, the final battle. Yeah, correct. Which, here's a little side note to think about. If the Millennium Falcon had a tracking device on it, how come the Empire did not realize it when the Millennium Falcon came back 
to help Luke and the rebels during um, the battle. Yeah, that's a good point. Mind blown. Yeah, well, because they were tracking it on the Death Star, and maybe Darth Vader did not have access to the tracking system or whatever. But someone would have noticed it. Would they have been able to relay the information though? But they could, maybe I don't know. That's a good. That's a good point. There's a. It's you know. There's a. There's a battle going on. There's war going on. There's well, there's got to be somebody on the comms telling people where the ships are, where the opposing forces are, and so forth. I'm just saying, I put a GPS tracking on a ship, I'm damn well going to know where that ship's going to be at at all times. Yeah, well, that's the thing. How soon did they know? The Falcon didn't come in right away. It, was, it only came in to, originally during that battle when it attacked Darth Vader's ship. Right. And when they, so when the battle initiated, Han left. Uh -huh. Him and Chewie left because they were going to go turn the, the money in to Jabba. Mm. But so Solo ended up coming back and destroyed one of the TIE fighters that ricocheted and caused Vader to go loose in space. Yeah, fly off, yeah. Right. The Force was with him. Yes. He's the only one that's flying. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of the Millennium Falcon, uh, in The Empire Strikes Back... This is the first time that I can remember where they had spaceships that were, I guess the best way to say it, broken and not clean. Like it was, they were having to bang stuff on to get it to turn on. They were having to fix things constantly. That's the first time that I can remember where they were having to do a lot of maintenance on a spaceship. Was that? That was in the Empire because okay. that's when they landed in... The, um, I guess the best word for it is the worm on that asteroid. Yeah. But I mean, like... And they had issues with going to um, light speed. Okay. But the, I guess they did kind of... Right. Sorry. I'm, got, I'm, I'm thinking my head's in episode four right now because um, I think the first time that... I think Luke had a, say, had a thing about that. He, he made a, a comment about the Millennium Falcon when he first saw it. And what a piece of junk. What a, yeah. Yeah. But see, it still flew. They didn't have any technical issues with the Millennium Falcon throughout Episode Four. Yeah, but they had plot armor, right? But when you go to Episode Five, the Empire, there's issues. I mean, when they're on Hoth, they're doing repairs. When they're in the asteroid inside the worm, they're doing repairs. When they go to Cloud City, they're doing repairs. I mean, it took R two D two the ability to make it be able to go faster than light. Lightspeed travel. Yeah, he, he had to get in there and type in the commands on the, on the console. Well, uh, he had figured out that the uh, light travel had been disabled. The people of Cloud City or the technicians of Cloud City had disabled it, and he re-enabled it. Mm-hmm. And since they already flipped all the right switches <laughs> in, the, in the cockpit, he was able to just... <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... Like I said, I like the fact that with the technical aspects of it, that you get the new with the old. I mean, you look at the Death Star, it's brand new, it's shiny, everything's working to a pristine, minus one minor little calculation of a um, being able to blow up the core. So What about it? No, Wait. I'm saying that that's a minor defect, how? depending on how you look at it. What, what, I don't know what, what you mean. Like, they were saying that the Death Star only has one flaw. So when okay. I look at it from a from technology point of view, I'm looking at a machine that can destroy a whole planet. 
Okay. It destroyed a planet. And the fact that it only has one flaw, and that flaw ended up being its own destruction, you figured somebody would have noticed that. And even when the battle had begun, and one of the engineers or one of the people from the Death Star went up to... Somebody did, they did figure it out. Yeah. They did figure it out. Yeah. Though. They figured it out, and they went up to uh, Tarkin, to... To Tarkin saying, hey, we've run uh, calculations on their projections. We did find a flaw. And Tarkin's like there just dismissive. Yeah. There could be a problem. Yeah. And Tarkin's just dismissive of it. So Tarkin is responsible for the Death Star being blown up as much as Luke is. This is why politics and military <laughs> campaigns should not mix. <laughs> Leave the dictatorship over there and <laughs> let the admirals and the moths take care of the war. <laughs> Uh, yet Star Wars and its sequels have a distinct anti-technology slant. The wise and the heroic characters, Luke Skywalker, Obi-Wan, Yoda, and even the shifty Solo don't put a lot of stock in technology. They don't. And the reason for this being um, Obi-Wan lived as a hermit. Mm -hmm. He did not have a lot of stuff in his hut. I mean, I think technologically wise, there was only the lightsaber. He doesn't need technology, though. He has the force. I mean, you can you have telekinesis. You can do pretty, do pretty much anything. But here's the thing, though, and this is the issue that we're going to be talking about later on. If the Jedi are in exile, if they use the force, won't the dark side know that the force is being used? I mean, they go into that into a late, in a later movie, which I won't talk about. Right. Ever. Just kidding. So I don't um, think that they can but, use the Force as much as we think that they could. Because the more that they used it, the more that it would have been noticed. I mean, I think you can use it in minor little aspects. Like when they were able to, um, Obi-Wan was able to say, these aren't the droids you're looking for. So you're saying you don't necessarily need to cut yourself off from the Force to be to go in stealth mode against the, uh, the Sith. Correct. Um... I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. No, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking about that. Um, see, I think Obi-Wan and same thing for Yoda and even Luke as the story progressed for 4, 5, and 6. They used it when they needed it. But they are, quote, unquote, earthly men who believe in the Force. They They... Rely on the force, but they don't use the force unless it's absolutely necessary or if it's a teaching moment. Sure. Like Yoda used the force on Dagobah, which is a very much dark side planet. It is. And he was hiding for that reason. Correct. He, he, why are you going to, how would you find a Jedi even, master? Even a powerful Jedi master among all Not the Not just dark master, side. but grandmaster, sure. master of the order. So yeah, yeah, yeah. to be able to mask that. I understand going to Dagobah. And the only time that, to my knowledge, where he used the Force was a teaching moment when he brought up Luke's X-Wing and the Empire Strikes Back. Mm -hmm. But he was saying, Luke was telling him, you're asking for the impossible. Mm -hmm. And he goes to Yoda afterwards, after Yoda had moved the ship, saying, I can't believe you did that. And Yoda says, that, that is, is why, why you failed. failed. So I get with the force, I get with the technology, you use it when you need to. I like the fact that the Empire, which I'm going to go ahead, 
for this general conversation are the bad guys. We all have our different opinions on the Republic and the Empire, but I, for this conversation, I'm going to say the empires are the bad guys. They well, use it's the technology. Yin, it's the yin and the yang. Right. There's good and the bad, and there's bad and the good. Agreed. But, yeah. But I like the fact that with the Empire, they use the whole technology aspect. They use it on TIE fighters. They use it on Star Destroyers. They use it for just about anything and everything, where the Rebels do use it, but... They don't. You, they use it as a helping tool. They don't use it as an absolute necessity, the way that the Empire does. Mm-hmm. I.e., the Death Star. They built okay, the Death technology. Star. Yes. To keep the Empire in check, to say if you don't do what the, we say, the this trade, is the consequence. The Trade Federation. Well, Palpatine, Emperor Palpatine started up the Trade Federation or worked with the Trade Federation to ultimately have it form the Galactic Empire because at the end... pawns. Yeah, because they were just used uh, a a tool to... uh, Basically, a tool to an end's means. Yeah, means to an end. Means to an end. Thank you. So they were used to create the Clone Army. The Mm -hmm. Clone Army was used to execute Order 66. Once... Order 66 had been executed, Vader went to Mustafar and shut down the droid empire. Yes. Wait, what? Vader went to Mustafar and shut down the droid empire. They uh, killed off... They they killed off everybody with the Trade Federation. The Trade Federation. Yeah, right, right. Right. So, droid empire gone. The clone troopers become... Stormtroopers, the Republic has now become the Empire. And it was all said because of a little microchip inside clones' heads. Now, yes, there were a few clones who had the chips removed, but for the most part, they just turned into mindless little obeying creatures. So, wait, wait, what's this about the chips in their heads again? Each clone trooper had a chip implanted in their head. They talk about it at Attack of the Clones. That gives them all the commands. Okay, okay, so like secret codes kind of stuff. Correct. So that's why whenever Order 66 was executed, the clone troopers were told to kill all Jedi at all cost. They were given the command, and then they knew exactly what to do. Correct. They, all, they had, all they needed was the order number. Right. And the authorization. Right, and Order 66 can only be given by the Supreme Chancellor. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Only the Chancellor and a few other people knew about the chips in the head. Mm-hmm. So with the chip in the Stormtroopers' heads, that only ended up amplifying on the Empire's side of things. So it ended up becoming a much bigger deal. It ended up becoming a swift transition from a Republic to the Galactic Empire. Mm-hmm. So hard coding of those orders, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, perfect for a dictator. <laughs> and I'll say this: the way that Palpatine transitioned himself from a Supreme Chancellor to the Galactic Empire, military-wise, it was a genius move. Mm. I mean, he did it swift. He did it quick. He gave little to no time for anybody to retaliate. I mean, it took over. I want to say the better part of almost 20 years 
20 plus years before he was brought down. And what he did, he was able to accomplish very quickly, although it was a plan that took a long time, starting with Bain, to execute, he was able to execute the grand plan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a big right. difference. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the Death Star battle. I mean, I know we've talked about it quite a bit, but it has such an impact for it being 1977. The climactic Death Star battle scene is a centerpiece of the movie's nature versus technology motif, a reminder to today's viewers about the pillars of relying too much on gadget and not enough on human intuition. You'll recall that Luke and his team of X-Wing fighters are attacking Darth Vader's planet-sized command center. One by one, the X-Wings are getting blown up. They try to destroy the reactor to the Death Star. They use the technology portion of it, and they miss. Luke goes in. He turns off his tracking radar, and he uses his senses. Thanks to the voice in his head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was the voice in his head. There was the intuition, and I think it was his first call on the Force. I mean, pilots are relying on a navigation and targeting system displayed through a small screen uh, to try to drop the torpedoes into the belly of the Death Star. Like I just said, no pilot had succeeded. Luke, who is at this time, I'm still going to, I'm going to classify him as an apprentice with the Force. He's, no, I'm I'm not even going to call him a Padawan. I'm going to call him an apprentice. Isn't apprentice usually the, no, the apprentice is the lowest level. You start off as an apprentice. Then you work up to Padawan, then you work up to Knight, then you work up to Master, and then if you're lucky, Grandmaster. Okay. So Luke is still an apprentice learning, learning the ways of the Force. Uh, he's used the Force, I want to say, probably once to twice. Once, like what we were talking about when he was on the Millennium Falcon, and he was using the droid um, simulator along with the lightsaber to be able to reflect blaster shots. He was able to see it. Right, even though he had the blaster, uh, the blast visor on Mm -hmm. with the helmet. With the force. Right, Uh, but when he's going down the, I guess the best word for it is runway, or when he's going down the trench run, the the trench run Mm -hmm. within the Death Star, the now, like what you were just saying, the now force ghost, Obi-Wan Kenobi, decides to put the force to work in the heat of the battle. Luke pushes the navigation screen from his face, shuts off his targeting computer, and lets the force guide him and the X-Wing's torpedo to the precise target, and it hits. Mm-hmm. He trusted himself. He trusted, yeah. He didn't trust his tool. He, did, he didn't trust the technology. He used his instincts, mm-hmm. which I think to, with today's point, some of that is lacking. Uh, Luke puts down his gadget, blocked off, the noise and found a quiet place in his in-like focus, George Lucas, in my opinion, was making an anti-technology statement 40 years ago that resonates today. Yes, and that was uh, said really well in the um, Legacy of the, the Legacy Revealed documentary by History Channel. Um, they're talking about man versus machine and trusting yourself. Um, it was the trench run that we were talking about when they said that. <clears throat> now, I'm going to be talking about with today's technology used a little bit into this 
uh, dialogue that I was coming up with. Uh, for any working professional in 2019, multi-screens, devices, apps are very important instruments for success, but the multitasking can be overwhelming. I mean, I've seen people on their phones and with two screens up and also having to do other things. The mind can only process so much. It can get overwhelming. You got to take a step back from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, and many apps we use only cause more worry and stress. For an example, if I'm looking up Facebook, I see someone post something that I, that, you know, is disheartening or causes me to worry about them. It can be stressful. It could be stressful on me. It could be stressful on them. Sometimes I feel like I need a Jedi level force to pull the screen away from my face. <laughs> Sometimes I just wish there was an Obi-Wan to say no phones, no computers, no technologies for the next 45 minutes to an hour. Just focus on whatever it is you need to focus on. Trust yourself, Robbie. Let go of the technology. <laughs> I wish I could. I mean, I have a Galaxy watch that I've modified to look like a Power Ranger communicator. And whenever I have my phone nearby or close, I get all my text messages, emails, and everything on there. On top of it, I get it on my phone. I get it on my work email. I get it on my personal email. It could just get overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> I got the message already. Stop telling me about it, every device. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think dependence on gadgets and internet connectivity can be a full-blown addiction. Now, we even have a digital detox rehab facility for those that care uh, for those careers relationships have been ruined by extreme gadget use. Can you believe that? There is something called a digital detox. That's not where they get away from the wireless signals, right? That's just where they're like... Electromagnetic radiation. Um, no, basically, I'm going to say they're going Amish. They cut off all communication. I mean, they get away from cell phones, iPods, music. I mean, they get away from it all. Mm -hmm. It's a complete detox. And it's at the same level that people use alcoholism and drugs. It is at the same level for that when you go to seek treatment. Yeah, okay. Is it covered by their insurance? That I don't know. You have to talk to your workers. You, you have to talk to your boss at HR about that. I don't need it. <laughs> I can stop anytime. Well, the first step is to admit you have a problem. If you don't have a problem, then there's no reason to admit it. <laughs> I didn't admit to anything. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm worried about that. I'm worried. Like, my mom was a uh, pre-K teacher. And the last year that she taught, they decided to go away with books. And they decided to go digital. What what books? What do you mean? Like, kid books. Okay, they're kids' books. Okay. Yeah, and they decided to go with iPads and things like that. Okay. My mom would still have to read a paper book from time to time just because there was not one digital or the iPad was not working or something like that. When she would pass it around to the kids, they were trying to swipe like it was a digital book. Wow. I'm worried about that. Yeah, I'm worried about that too. I don't know how to do that. How old were they again? They're still in pre-K. They're, they're not like... They're, they're in pre-K four. So the age range would be between four to six, somewhere in yeah, between there. That's not terrible. But they should really learn that skill of turning pages of books. Okay. Well, just saying. Like there were, like, 
guess the best way to say it, when we had to do pre-K, it was different compared to what it is today. Just like when our parents had to do pre-K or kindergarten, whatever they want to call it back in the day, mm -hmm. it was different then. Education standards have gone down. Right, everybody's got access to Wikipedia. Right, and see, and that's the thing. That's what worries me about with the technology. I mean, people go to Wicca more than they go to a library. And I get it. It's the convenience of it all. And well, I'll be the first one to say this, is that, you know, when I have, when I need to look something up, I immediately either go to Google or I immediately look it up on my phone to whatever it is. I don't, it's about the instant gratification. And I don't know if that's the right word for it, but it's the word I'm going to use because yeah. the way that society is now, it's requiring instant results. People don't have the patience anymore. I, it's still not fast enough for me. I want my answers faster. Um, some people have Wikipedia. Some people own encyclopedias. Some people go to the library and look at their encyclopedia or other books. I mean, so, I mean, we both went to the same high school. We both graduated in 2003. We did not have the technology the way that it is presented today. We had to go look stuff up by either an encyclopedia or by actual books, mm -hmm. where today's society, with instant satisfaction, instant gratification, they can go to Google or Wicca. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you think about that? I think it's great for me. <laughs> I don't want to go to the library. Okay. <laughs> I think you're missing what the message that Lucas was trying to convey. I don't know if that's the message he was trying to convey. I think it was more like, don't become... Dependent you know, on technology. You don't necessarily have to become... It's a, it's a... Yeah, like, you don't have to become the technology. You don't have to become a cyborg. I mean, I think when Luke battled himself in the cave or he was trying to come to terms to what was, in his point of view, um, darkness, was himself... So when he chopped off the Vader, so to speak, and the helmet did disappear and did break, it ended up being himself. He, he saw his own head. What I'm getting at is I think within that cave, there's more to it. I think that there's no denying, of course, that we need these screens and gadgets full of information. They make us more productive at work, they spark our creativity, and they help us connect with our colleagues. The message of Star Wars isn't, let's be rebellious and just meditate. To me, the message is, you don't defeat Darth Vader by concentrating really hard. Do you mean to explain that a little bit? Sure. Okay, I think... Because I thought it was about like psychology more than that. Well, and see, that's where I'm getting at. To me... If you give in to the temptation of technology, if you get into the temptation of darkness and evil, you'll be consumed by it. It will become you. Right. And Just that's like kind of... Vader. Vader is the opposite. Vader is the one that took the Faustian bargain. He, he's the one that fell and became evil, basically. became the monster that he was trying to fight. Right. Because if you think about it, and we're going to be... And this is referencing episodes one, two, and three. Vader hated what he had become. Anakin Skywalker was supposed to be a beacon of light, was supposed to be a beacon of hope. He was the chosen one. When he fell to corruption and became Darth Vader, 
And when Darth Vader got cut down, he became the embodiment of everything he hated. His movements were constricted. He wasn't able to be himself. He had killed and he had indirectly killed Padme. Everything that he was fighting to save, he lost. And he was trapped in a machine body. Yeah, I think it, that I think that was imposed on him. I suppose it was because, like, they had better technology. Like, but like Palpatine, like, specifically put him in this suit, this like, like an older, you know, uh, model, something that's not going to give him as much dexterity, and also possibly even hindering it, like, on purpose, so that he's he has to do a lot of extra work, to, or, or you know, I mean, it, 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 the suit could absolutely. A suit can make someone stronger than a normal person, even if they're have lost limbs or whatever. Like they could, they can, you know, they can gain it back with prosthetics, and also those prosthetics could could be engineered to make them stronger. But yes and no. I think that the suit did make Vader stronger, but the fact that he lost both his legs, essentially lost both of his arms because one was already a robotic arm, and he had severe damage to his lungs. He needed that suit to keep him alive. Right. The restrictions that the suit was restrictive on purpose. It was meant, it was designed to be, you know, it was designed to keep him alive, but not to get him back or go beyond what he w was before. It was there to hinder him, to annoy him, to make him angry, all those different things to enhance his dark side ability and to keep him down there. That is 100% true. And the reason why I know this is that I read... Uh, Revenge of the Sith, the book. And in the book, whenever Vader is getting operated on, I guess is the best word to say it, uh, the Emperor had said, do not give him any pain medication, loosely translated. Okay. So he was conscious, he was awake, and he felt everything that was being done to him, but that was done by the Emperor to fuel his dark side. Yeah. So I get that. Um, I mean... I feel a little bit of sympathy for what happened with Vader, but it was his own pride. I know that's really not touching on the technology aspect of it, but it's a good thing to talk about because Vader ended up becoming what he absolutely hated. He got stuck in a cyborg suit. Yeah. So I think the overreaching message of Star Wars is too much technology can't be good for you. Uh, if you know, use it to conquer evil, but don't overdo it and don't let it override your own human force. Don't let technology replace you, man versus machine. Basically, don't, yeah. don't become so dependent on it, you stop being you and you become someone else. Don't, yeah, kind of like the uh, the, the uh, Republic versus the Empire, like it's like man versus machine. And we're going back to the other subject, by right? The way. But the overreaching message of Star Wars is to use technology for good. Use it to conquer evil, but don't let it override your human force. Don't let technology replace you. A good example of that is with Star Wars Episode Six: Return of the Jedi. With the Ewoks on the Battle of Endor, they use nature to bring down the Empire, to bring down the machines. It's, it matters the intent behind the tool. Agreed. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, the dark side of the technology isn't just about cyber spying or hacking or theft. It's about bullying on social media 
excessive self-promoting uh, and gossiping and spreading violent or lured content. Um, if need be, Darth Vader is hiring. What I mean is try to be kind to one another if you can. The, this anonymous cyberbullying, this anonymous cyber attacks and things like that, it doesn't need to happen. You know, be a Jedi. Don't be a Sith. Try to be out there for good. Take a lesson from a great Jedi warrior. Put the screen away from time to time and give your mind and personality a chance to shine. When it's time to use the screen again, use it for good. And may the Force be with you. Our next subject is The Empire Dreams, a 2004 documentary, and I'm going to read what Wicca has said about it. The Empire Dreams, the story of the Star Wars trilogy, is a 2004 documentary directed by Kevin Burns. It documents the making of the original Star Wars trilogy, Star Wars 1977, The Empire Strikes Back 1980, and Return of the Jedi 1983, and their impact on pop culture. Empire Dreams is a well-crafted, in-depth documentary that chronicles the making of the original Star Wars trilogy. The film features interviews from all those involved in the making of the trilogy from 1977 to 1983 and features plenty of behind-the-scenes footage. You also have uh, Lucas's friends on there. Uh, Steven Spielberg makes an appearance on there. and There are um, several other people mm -hmm. that make appearances. Fans will certainly love this documentary as it is the definitive work on the trilogy. From the earlier stages of Lucas's career, like THX 1138 to American Graffiti, you will get and understand the idea that he wanted to do something bigger. I don't think he planned on changing the movie industry. He just wanted to make the films. But Lucas and his team ended up building the industry to what is used today, the company known as Industrial Light and Magic and Pixar. I mean, think about that, Underwood. Pixar, Industrial Light and Magic. Those are probably the two biggest special effects companies out there today. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you get Toy Story, you get Wally, -E, you get Cars with Pixar. Mm -hmm. And with ILM, I mean, think about it. You get Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. you get Star Wars. I mean, just the overall concept of that. The fact that when he was making these movies, he had to make these companies to support his movies. And now these companies are multi-billion dollar companies. Yep. And aren't they going back to practical effects now? What do you mean? Just, that's just an, that's just an industry trend maybe. Uh, maybe it was for this, the Jurassic Park movies or anyway. Uh, I, maybe, I don't know if it was Lucas or whatever. You know, they're just going, isn't there, isn't there, wasn't there like a trend where they would, they're going back to practical effects generally in the industry just because there's been like a backlash about there's too much CG and also it's not that great to CG so it doesn't look real and why well, I'm not invested in it. I don't want to see this video game, whatever. Right. Crappy, crappy video game. No, I get what you're saying but to me some of it depends on what the movie is. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, I want to say it was 1993 that Jurassic Park came out. I'm going to say right. er, yeah, I'm going to say early 90s. I mean, when you saw that T-Rex, given what the technology was in 1990 compared to today's technology, mm -hmm. I could not tell that was a fake T-Rex. Also, at the same time, I was six to seven years old. Six to ten, we'll call it. I was probably about the right age. Same yeah. age. And, yeah, I'm still scarred by it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, I like the fact 
that it was George Lucas who ended up giving us, when it was all said and done, Woody and Buzz. His <laughs> company, the company that he started, ended up giving us Buzz Lightyear, Woody, Wally. I mean, just giving us a, a multi-billion dollar yeah. companies. Industry, though. They made the industry. Like, yeah. And what, what would it be like today without uh, that? How, how much later would we have had to wait for that kind of stuff? Agreed. I mean, and that goes to with uh, Lucas changed the way that films are made. The Empire Dreams is a terrific documentary that gives you the big story of the trilogy. I really love the documentary and the amount of content displayed on the screen. The interviews are interesting and entertaining from Mark Hamill to Carrie Fisher to like what I was saying earlier with Steven Spielberg. Star Wars is a milestone in the cinematic history, and this documentary is a must-see for diehard fans of the original trilogy. Yeah, and it was so it was so heartwarming to see how the the original cast, the at least the big three. I I, I don't remember uh, the, in the in the clips that I saw. It was mostly um, Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and uh, who played Solo? <laughs> that guy, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Indiana anyway. Jones. Yes, that guy. Um, it was also an American Graffiti. They were, you know, they had just come through like an action. They were doing an action scene. They were going across the camera from the camera's perspective. They were on the far side and coming towards the camera. And um, after the the cut, um, they were all just like goading um, George, saying and and like he's supposed to because he's a director supposed to say something after the cut, like. And do it again with more, you know. Right. Or he, they were saying that the mic faster. was in the shot. Yes, that's the one. That's the same thing. Yeah, shot. is that they were saying that the mic was in the shot, so they had to go back in and redo it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But wait, wait, wait. They were, they were saying, and all three of them, at least. I don't know about Peter, Peter Mayhew. He was off camera, I think, still. But um, he was saying, they were saying, and, and, because they were expecting him to say. Say and like, one more time for me. And. All right. Um, faster and with more enthusiasm? Intensity. Intensity, that's the one. Um, he said that to everybody except for three CPO. And the reason for that being, you do not want an intense C3PO. Yeah, he's already kind of antsy. <laughs> um, but yeah, because like they were trying to, they were trying to cheer him up because he seemed depressed. Like he was, he was on, he was being worked. Well, the documentary no. talks about the fact that he had to go to the hospital yeah. because he was overstressed. He wasn't eating. He wasn't sleeping. I mean, he had to check himself into a couple of days for a hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kept very quiet by the studios and the executives. Mm -hmm. So I think once that got around to fellow cast members, they took it a bit serious. Uh, like Harrison Ford said, is that it was just a very odd movie to be a part of the cantina scene was very odd for him. Mm -hmm. uh, him meeting Greedo and Greedo and all that paint was odd because you had never seen in the movies green people like that. Mm -hmm. And there were several other things that were weird about that. The you know the the hairy dog man, like you know all that stuff. The one who lost the arm. Yeah, it was a lot of. It was out there. It was not. It was doing a lot. It was trailblazing cinema. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of a um, known fact. Not a lot of people know this, and it's a little sub—it's a little bit off subject of Empire Dreams. But did you know that Greedo 
was initially in The Phantom Menace, Episode 1. Not at all. Yes. How? It, it was a deleted scene. It shows Anakin getting angry. Uh, Greedo accused Anakin of cheating. So Anakin wrestles him to the ground and starts whooping up on him a little bit. When? This was a deleted scene in Episode 1 right. after the pod race. Oh, okay. Greedo accused him of cheating. Okay. And it was the first time you saw a little bit of anger within Anakin. So this, of course, is a deleted scene that is available in, like, the extended edition? I right. Must, I must not have seen it. Uh, well, there's remember. never been an extended edition of 1, 2, and 3. There has been a special edition of 4, 5, and 6. But there's never been any extended. But you can watch uh, episode 1 on Blu-ray DVD. You can watch the deleted scenes. And it's one of the deleted scenes. Okay. That's the first time that you meet Greedo. And, of course, in episode four, you see the downfall of Greedo. What I want, I want to see a movie of what happens between episode one and episode four of Greedo. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. That's enough getting off subject. Um, but uh -huh. <laughs> just trying to add a little humor into the podcast, ladies you, and gentlemen. Do you know you want to see it? <laughs> Uh, in terms of the documentary, this is a flawless picture that is engaging from start to finish and is directed, like I said, by Kevin Burns. As well as making of the trilogy, the film also tells the story about how George Lucas became one of the most ambitious filmmakers in the industry for that time. And I'm actually going to say probably for all time or up to current time. He was a visionary. Yeah. It was. I mean, like I said, if you think about it, he, he started Industrial Light and Magic, Lucasfilm Limited... And also made Fox a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What was it? The common movie, sci-fi movie, the average sci-fi movie would take, I believe from, I can't remember which one it was. Up 10, until. $10 million was average? Yes. Uh, is that the highest? Yes, the highest, uh, up until uh, 77 Star Wars, the highest grossing film was Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And that made, like what you were saying, about 10 to $20 million. Star Wars made well over hundred million. <laughs> I was gonna say well over fifty million. And they made over hundred million back in seventy seven. I think so. Wow, that's what, I think that's what they said. Okay, yeah. Okay, so if, uh, the film made over a hundred million dollars back in seventy seven. So that is very impressive. Um, I did not know that. I learned something new today. So, like I said, George Lucas became one of the most ambitious filmmakers in the industry for current times and for past times. Um, I've seen plenty of uh, making of documentaries about Star Wars, but The Empire Dreams is the film to watch, in my opinion. The original Star Wars trilogy will always stand as the best trilogy for me. Um, yes, we do have the prequels, which is one, two, and three. And as of 2015, we have, I guess, what you would call the sequels, which would be seven, eight, and nine, and nine comes out this year. I'm not gonna talk about seven and eight. That needs to be on a different conversation, but I'm glad that the Skywalker saga is what I'm calling it, will be wrapped up. <laughs> and although Lucas had some creative input or they used him as a reference for the seven, eight, and nine, I'm glad that it is concluding. You know they're going to do more. <laughs> well, they probably are going to do more Star Wars films. I just don't think they're going to involve the Skywalker saga. I th Disney has said the Skywalker saga ends with nine. Well, they better go back into the past and do Revan and all that, you know. 
Well, there's been talk about doing uh, a Bane sequel or like a Bane mythology. They've talked about doing a Revan, but we'll talk about that another time. We've gotten off subject twice. Um, like I said, there's been plenty of documentaries. The original Star Wars will always be one of the best ones uh, that I think I have ever seen be put on film even with the touch-ups that Lucas has done since the release of the special edition, which I believe came out in 96, 97. And in 2011, you had the Blu-ray versions of the films. The appeal of Star Wars is still for the audience to enjoy with the bar that has been set in terms of filmmaking after the release of the original films. Star Wars has a reputation of being one of the greatest film sagas in the genre and of history. Do you agree? I agree. Why do you agree? Because I just love Star Wars. I'm a true fan. Good answer. And and to quote C-3PO, let the Wookiee win. Well, yeah, I guess he did say that, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he did. Uh, to summarize, Empire Dreams is a comprehensive documentary about the original trilogy, as I can imagine anyone making with the, with the authorization of George Lucas's approval. So... I encourage everyone to watch this film. It's about two and a half to two hours long. Yep, it's I'm a hard. good film. It breaks down uh, episode four, five, and six individually. It talks about everything that you could possibly want to think of, why he had to use 20th Century for episode four and why he was able to do five and six as under his own banner. Mm. So... Watch this. You'll enjoy it. I promise. For this part, we're going to be talking about Star Wars The Legacy Revealed. Star Wars The Legacy Revealed. Uh, Star Wars The Legacy Revealed is a documentary that came out in 2007, and this is what Wicca says about it. Star Wars The Legacy Revealed is a TV documentary which premiered on the History Channel in May 2007. It was produced by Prometheus Entertainment in association with the History Channel and Lucasfilm Limited. The executive producer and director uh, was Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Kevin Burns. Just to let everybody know, this film, like I just said, came out in 2007. So this is not going to be talking about 7, 8, and 9. The show focuses on how Star Wars is, revel is relevant to today. Once again, back in 2007 when it came out. And ancient times. <laughs> it's, it's eternal, actually. Yes. And the history that inspired it. It also makes various connections to Greek mythology. The show consists of a number of interviews with well-known politicians, journalists, and critics, along with historical content and clips from all six films. But like I just said... Remember, this was made before the Disney purchase. This was made before Seven. It was the number one highest rated History Channel program among viewers 18 to 49 and number two among viewers aged 25 to 54. It was nominated for three Emmy Awards, but did not win any. This was before Seven, Eight, and Nine, before the dark times. I'll agree with that, especially with Eight. <laughs> seven? I'm okay with Seven. But eight, not a big fan of. And what's sad is I have a Mark Hamill signed episode eight poster at home. If I had known how bad or how much I was going to dislike eight, I would have had him sign a different poster. I'm kind of wishy-washy on this. I've, I've 
liked it. I have disliked it. I've liked multiple alternative stories. People, people on on YouTube or whatnot, um, where they've rewritten it basically. And the oh man, there's there are some really good ones out there. But uh, you know, it's interesting. It's a story. I'm just I'm just waiting for the Revan story. Let's go back two thousand years and or whatever eight thousand whatever. Let's go, let's go back to the old Republic. The old Republic. Yes. <laughs> Just, just give me Knights of the Old Republic with you know, Bastila, with Malik. Oh, oh, and I am Jolie. Do something with Netflix. Like, literally, I, okay, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's not going to be wait, Netflix. Wait. It's going to be Disney Plus now. I, okay, yeah, yeah. You don't have to settle on a particular branch for Knights of the Old Republic. You can make Knights of the Old Republic live action with CG and all that awesomeness. Okay. Um... To an extent, you can't really control the action, but you can control the direction of the story. So you can make it be a lot, you know, a, lot, a movie version of Code Knights of the Republic, and it still has all the choices that you had in the original game. They could totally do it. Anyway. Okay, with the legacy revealed, like I said, it came out in 2007. I actually saw this on cable. I didn't know anything about it. I ended up having to, uh, at the time, go online and find it through other means because I had actually missed like the first 15, 20 minutes of it when I was just surfing through the TV. But I caught the episode on the History Channel when it aired. Uh, it came out uh, right around, I want to say close to two years after. The episode three. Yeah, episode three, Revenge of the Sith. Uh, it was a fantastic exploration of the mythology components of the Star Wars saga. Um, although I knew the films backwards and forwards, this show explored Star Wars in a way I never even knew to think about. I really became fascinated with Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey concept. And that's what this podcast is mainly going to go into, the hero's journey. The more I thought about Campbell's writing uh, when I was thinking about doing this podcast... Uh, the more I agreed that it played a huge role in Star Wars. But in order to do it, I had to put a list together of 12 reasons and ideas that you'll probably agree with me by the time this podcast is over uh, about Campbell's concepts and also demonstrates how these stages could be tracked through A New Hope. I'm mainly using A New Hope because it's the one that started it all. Mm -hmm. And could be considered a self-contained story. Correct. Because they didn't know if they were going to make it, you know, all of them. Right. No, I 100% agree with that. But for me, a lot of people say episode one kicked off Star Wars. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, Star Wars 77, because at the time it wasn't given the title of A New Hope, kicked off everything. Mm -hmm. It changed everything. Campbell's philosophy and teachings, I most notice with episode four, A New Hope. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, it was actually one script, but he cut it into three pieces because he couldn't tell that all in one movie. Really? He didn't want to throw it away. That was actually, I believe it was in the Empire of Dreams documentary. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so um, the story was the entire, the, the trilogy. Like, I mean, it makes sense that it would be, but I mean, of course, it went through a lot of editing just to make the first third of it, which is so for New Hope, 
Right, because um, he spent over a year putting the script together before he had to break it up into three parts. Because mm -hmm. it, it got to be editing. a fat script. Yep, and then it was saved in the editing afterwards. Right. Uh, you did a little bit of research on this. Uh, did Campbell and Lucas ever meet? You know what? I'm not sure, but they definitely talked, in, uh, at least over the phone. Okay. Um, and a, uh, supposedly, Campbell was quoted as saying that George Lucas was the best student he ever had. That's cool. I like that. So Campbell and Lucas got to have many conversations about what was to become Star Wars. Because uh, Lucas, if anything is a brilliant researcher. He likes being able to get his facts. He likes being able to get all the ducks lined up, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So that's good to know. I guess he could have written letters or something, too. Possibly. Um, okay, so the first of the 12 reasons for the hero's journey, I call, or Campbell calls, the call to adventure. The hero, Luke, starts off in their normal world, but is presented with some information that acts as a call to head off into the unknown. In 77 Star Wars, Luke receives a plea from a recorded hologram, mm -hmm. hologram from Princess Leia. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Right. And what I like about that, and we're gonna, like I said, this was made way before other films were made, I like the fact that Rogue One ties into 77 Star Wars. Yes. Because at the end of Rogue One... It was handed over? Handed over to Leia. The disc. Of yeah, of the information to the Death Star. And then Leia made the, uh, made the recording with R2 saying, Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Mm -hmm. Like what you just said. Mm -hmm. So I like that. It was more, but that was the only part that was being shown because it was meant for Obi-Wan. Right. Yeah. And Luke just somehow was toying with the droid yeah. and got it to play. Also, it didn't make sense to show a farm boy the plans to the Death Star. <laughs> that is true. He might get ideas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So number two, I have refusal of the call. Uh, the hero refuses the challenge or the journey, usually because he feels a sense of duty or obligation fear, insecurity, or a sense of inadequacy. Um, in the Star Wars film, Luke tells Obi-Wan he can't go to Alderaan because of family responsibilities. Now, this is when he's on Tatooine and he's staying with his aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. You have to do the, the moisture harvest. Correct. Yeah. Now, we know what happens to the aunt and uncle. Mm -hmm. Blasters. Right. Maybe some, I don't know, force choke or something. Nah, well, I don't know if Vader was there, but um, I do know that according to the Vader book, he did witness the deaths of the aunt and uncle via hologram. Right. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Also, he doesn't want to set foot in that planet again. Right. Because there was so much pain and so much suffering that was caused on that planet to him. And sand. Yes. Doesn't like sand. Well, with the Vader and the whole technology thing, breath box, all that, sand gets, no. Gets everywhere. <laughs> it truly does. So coarse. <laughs> uh, but 
to me also, I think with the refusal of the call, Luke knows that he's going to have to take actions, that he can't be on the sidelines anymore. Yeah, I think that was touched upon also in the, I guess that, that was in the, convers, the conversation going on right. with, was with Obi-Wan when he was resisting the call. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I mean, Luke is telling Obi-Wan that he can't go, that he has family obligations and things like that, but he's also mentally starting to prepare himself. Yeah, bracing himself. he has a destiny, mm-hmm. which leads into what you just talked about with Obi-Wan, the number three, which is the mentor figure slash supernatural aid. Once the hero has committed to the quest, his or her guide and magical helper appears or becomes known. More often than not, the supernatural mentor will present the hero with one or more talismans and or artifacts that will aid them in their later quest. In A New Hope, Obi-Wan begins to instruct Luke in the ways of the Force and gives him his father's lightsaber. Mm -hmm. And this is where I also learned that Obi-Wan told the truth from a certain point of view. Yes. Yes, your father was a Jedi Knight. Um, And then a young pupil by the name of Darth Vader destroyed your father, which is... One one of the best pilots in the galaxy. Yes. Uh, And a fierce, cunning warrior and a true friend. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And then a young... Young Padawan, or young Jedi. He says, he says a young pupil. A young, I don't know. Anyway. A young pupil by the name of Darth Vader betrayed, betrayed and, and murdered, murdered your father. father. Yes. So that's where I learned about the telling the truth, but from a different point of view. Mm-hmm. Just interesting concept. Yes. The shadow overtook Anakin. Correct. Shadow Vader. Uh, number four. Crossing the first threshold. This is the point where the hero actually crosses into the field of adventure, leaves the known limits of his or her world, and ventures into the unknown and dangerous realm where the rules and limits are not known. We know that this is Campbell's Heroes of the Journey, but we were talking earlier on when we are getting our materials for this that you were talking about Campbell's idea of darkness what did you figure out the shadow yeah um probably not gonna remember this correctly but uh joseph campbell was influenced by the work of carl jung who uh one of the one of the part of his theories is the the shadow where um you know it's like it's literally like the subconscious uh like Vengeful, regretful, whatever. Everything that you don't allow to the surface. Or like, um, it's kind of like the yin and the yang. Like if, um, um, it's everything you repress, like you ignore. Okay, so we were talking offline about Campbell when we were putting this together and the hero's journey. And one of the things that you talked about was the shadow concept. What did you find? Uh, StarWars.com, they have a great article. Called uh, Star Wars and Mythology, The Shadow. And in that, verbatim, uh, Carl Jung is essentially the great grandfather of Star Wars. As Joseph Campbell included much of Jung's work, psychological research in his work, 
Jung's work highlights the concept of the collective unconscious and aspects of our psyche that exist for everyone. Jung theorizes that this is collective unconscious is responsible for the common themes in our mythology, even, even across isolated independent cultures. All we're drawing from, the ar from archetypes hidden in our subconscious, archetypes that are part of what makes us human. The shadow is one prevalent Jungian archetype, but it is Star Wars that definitively makes use of it. Definition, the shadow. Again, this is StarWars.com. The shadow is an aspect of our unconscious psychology that our conscious, our conscious refuses to acknowledge and is usually negative. It can be anything from aggressive animal instincts to laziness to sadistic behavior. Jung specifies that the shadow, excuse me, Jung specifies that the less the shadow is embodied in the individual's conscious life, the blacker and denser it is. In other words, acknowledging and mastering the shadow is essential to keeping it from worsening, such as the dark side. That's me adding it. A merger of the individual with the shadow is common. However, for the merger to be positive, it must be initiated by the individual himself. Allowing one shadow to take conscious control leads to a negative lifestyle. That's becoming Vader, by the way. Where one is controlled by their impulses. Actively, actively acknowledging one's darker side and taking control of it is much more positive, a much more positive approach. According to Jung, it produces a stronger, wider awareness, consciousness than before. Confronting your darkness, your dark side leads to a stronger, more balanced, balanced individual. You might see where this is going. Examples of mythology. Since the shadow is a part of our collective, collective psychology, it frequently emerges in our, in our mythology and storytelling. The strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is possibly the most obvious example. It is In it, the shadow literally takes control of Jekyll's mind and body and enslaves him to his basis instincts. The werewolf motif is another example. It is common to have mythological characters who can't control their dark side, and as a result, their shadow emerges into the realm of the physical, turning someone into an, anim an animal often used as a form of punishment in mythology, such as Zeus turning Lycaon into a wolf for killing his children, or Athena turning Ariadne into a spider. Sounds a lot like Arachna. Uh, arachnid. Um, in these cases, the animal represented the psychology for these, those individuals, showing their true colors for all to see, a physical manifestation of the shadow. Joseph Campbell also points to the story of the frog prince. In the story, a princess is confronted on three separate occasions by the frog. On the first two visits, she, she is repulsed, but she relents on the third occasion and kisses the frog, who then transforms into a prince. According to Campbell, the frog is the shadow. The kiss is acceptance of it, and the prince is rewarded. It is the reward. The shadow can be found in almost every story ever told, whether it's the devil among attempting Eve or Mord Mordred corrupting his father's kingdom. The shadow saturates our mythology. Use the shadow. Use of the shadow in Star Wars. Again, StarWars.com. Star Wars is our own modern mythology, and it borrows many of the same motifs. The shadow is no exception. In fact, the shadow is one of the most dominant. The most obvious use of the shadow is the dichotomy between light and dark sides of the Force. The dark side of the Force represents the shadow, while the light side represents the ego. Balance is attained when the light side masters the dark. We see this explicitly in The Clone Wars, the television show, like this. Um, in the season six episode, Destiny, yes, Yoda is confronted by a literal shadow of himself. Spoiler alert, I haven't even seen that episode, I don't think. The ensuing fight does little good. It isn't until Yoda acknowledges and accepts the shadow that he is able to master and control it. This is a direct parallel to Jung's recommenda recommendation to merge with the shadow, gaining strength and awareness. Both Anakin and Luke Skywalker merge with their shadow, but with different results. Anakin allows his shadow to take over, probably because he is unaware that it existed. As Jung would say, being unaware of the shadow means it is likely darker or more dangerous. 
Once the shadow has taken over, Anakin becomes Darth Vader, a literal embodiment of his own shadow, much like the mythological concept of the werewolf. Luke goes through a similar trial. His vision on Dagobah is a direct representation of what he must go through psychologically. After cutting off Vader's head in the cave, he realizes the head was his own. In that instance, Vader was Luke, or rather, he was Luke's shadow. This is probably the first instance where Luke becomes aware of his shadow. He is forced to acknowledge it further when he learns of his, per his parentage and just how much darkness exists inside of him. However, it is this awareness of his shadow that allows Luke to overcome it. Just as Jung represents, suggests we confront our shadow to overcome it, Yoda tells Luke he must confront Vader to become a Jedi. In that final moment, when Luke confronts Vader, Luke looks at his hand, acknowledges the similarities between himself and his father. He acknowledges the potential that That's he, because his father had his hand chopped off again. Yes. He acknowledges that potential... Well, yeah, limbs cut off too. He acknowledges the potential that he has to join the dark side, his shadow, and become just like Darth Vader. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because, yeah. Um, he acknowledges the fact that the he has a dark side and is poised to take over, and he accepts it. When Luke utters the words, I'll never turn to the dark side, I am a Jedi, he completes the final task of confronting his shadow and mastering it. Like Yoda in the, in the Clone Wars, Luke accepts his dark side as part of himself. Thus, the shadow archetype is balanced. Vader, who is this case symbolizes the shadow, is redeemed at this exact moment, becoming an outward representation of Luke's inner triumph. That was Star Wars in Mythology, The Shadow. Great article. Okay, there's one correction I want to make on that. When Luke turns to the Emperor, he says, I am a Jedi like my father before me. Yes. Yes. That was a, that was a really good point in the movie. Yeah. So it kind of ties the shadow concept of what you were talking about. Uh, great article. It's on StarWars.com. Hopefully you understood that. If not, re-listen to it. It's pretty good. Or read it yourself. Yeah. Learn to read. I'll put the link in there. <laughs> uh, okay, so back to the legacy revealed with the hero's uh, journey. I've named three so far. The call to adventure, the refusal of the call, the mentor figure slash supernatural aid, and now the next one is crossing the first threshold. This is the point where the hero actually crosses into the field of adventure. He leaves the known limits of his or her world and ventures into the unknown and dangerous realm where the rules and limits are not known. In Star Wars, Luke follows Obi-Wan to a cantina and most Isleys have uh, a wretched hive of villainy and scum, as Obi-Wan would say, yep. uh, in search of a pilot to take them to... Alderaan. Mm -hmm. Number five is test allies and enemies. For this one, the hero faces test, meets allies, confronts enemies, and learns the rules of the special world. In Star Wars, Luke meets Han Solo and the Wookiee known as Chewbacca and the Mos Eisley's Cantina after meeting C-3PO and R2-D2 when they were purchased from the Jawas. Uh, C-3PO and R2-D2 are what sets the events in Ford. It's R2 going to look for Obi-Wan. He's found by Luke. So it's what sets the events of what is to occur. Uh, he learns from Obi-Wan that Darth Vader murdered his father, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, from a different point of view, mm -hmm. and begins training with the lightsaber in the arts of becoming a Jedi, just like Luke's father was. Yep. Like my father before me. Yes. Which, to me, that is probably one of the most important lines 
of the whole Star Wars saga. I mean, people always say, you know, may the force be with you. But that has the most impactful line is like my father before me. Mm -hmm. Because Luke acknowledges that Darth Vader was once Anakin Skywalker, a Jedi Mm -hmm. Knight. Yep. So number six is meeting with the goddess. And you actually did a little bit of research on this one. So I'm going to tell you what my interpretation of it is, my reference point in Star Wars. And then we'll also be talking about um, the prequels a little in this one. The hero meets a female figure of power and significance, often supernatural and a representation of unconditional either heroism, love, or knowledge. In episode four, Princess Leia inadvertently sends Luke on a quest to become a Jedi and ultimately becomes family to him. Now, this kind of ties into a little bit, like what I was just saying, with episode one, two, and three. Um, Of course, we know that Luke and Leia's mother is Queen Amidala. Mm. Queen Amidala was first the queen and then later senator of the planet Naboo. Yes. And what did your research tell you about Naboo? Well, this is from the uh, Star Wars Legacy Revealed. Yes, which is what we've been talking about. Yes, <laughs> of course. The research from them of that documentary. Uh, Naboo apparently means uh, goddess wisdom in Babylonian. Really? Yep. It's the name of the god of wisdom. Okay. So, if... Sh- if she's the queen of Naboo, she's the queen of wisdom. And knowledge. Okay, see, this is what's a little bit interesting slash odd about the whole Padme-Anakin relationship. I'm going to say Padme's seven to ten years older than Anakin. Definitely older. Hmm? Definitely older. Yeah. I mean, I'm going with that age range. It could have been... More than that. Because mm-hmm. I'm going to say Anakin was probably seven to nine in episode one. I'm going to say Padme was probably in her late teens, early 20s. So I'm going to go okay. with that. Where I'm sure. getting at it is, though, for someone who's supposed to be wise and supposed to be understanding, there's no way that she doesn't think in the back of her mind her marrying Anakin Skywalker, which is against Jedi code. It's against the code. It's against the council. It's against everything that the Jedi believes in. But she doesn't know the code. No, but she's smart enough to know that, hey, this is probably not a good idea. Because if you think about it, everything that Anakin did was to save Padme. Him turning to the dark side, him killing the younglings, him helping out with Order 66 before the whole battle of Mustafar, everything he did was to save Padme. You turned her against me. You have done that yourself. So he yes. So what? Why were you talking about? Well, the reason why I'm getting at it is when we call someone the queen or the senator of Naboo, we're going to assume that they have wisdom and understanding. There was no wisdom or understanding with her marrying and producing kids of Anakin Skywalker. 
I'm not sure I quite get the connection. It wasn't Padme. It wasn't Obi-Wan. It was Anakin that did it. No, but here's the thing, though. Anakin always had feelings for Padme. That's never been denied. I mean, same with Shane. It's ultimately his responsibility. No, it's not. Because if, <coughs> excuse me, if Padme had turned Anakin down in episode two, Attack of the Clones, none of that would have happened in episode three. The Force willed it. Meh, I don't know. The Force works in mysterious ways. That's a weak example. Good quote, but weak example. (laughs) All right. You must do what you feel is right, of course. And Anakin and Padme did what they felt was right. (laughs) As much of a weak excuse that is, it's actually a valid one. What is love? No, uh-uh, no 80s music. Not right now. No. Okay. No, I will throw something at you. <laughs> All right. So we're about halfway done where I think we stay, uh, where I think we stand on the hero's concept. We have the call to adventure, refusal of the call, mentor figure slash supernatural aid, crossing the first threshold, test allies and enemies, meeting with the goddess. So basically, um, what is love? Baby, don't turn me. Don't turn me to the dark side. Okay. Go ahead. No 80s music. And no modifying 80s music. Although it does work. All right. So number seven is the belly of the whale. The belly of the whale represents the final separation from the hero's known world and self. By entering this stage, he shows willingness to undergo a metamorphosis. In Star Wars, the best example that I can find for this, Luke enters the Death Star um, with the Millennium Falcon being captured by a tractor beam. What happens here will change Luke forever. Of course, we all know what happens once they're all on the Death Star. Um, Certain events play out. Certain things happen that will forever alter Luke. And that will forever alter the Republic. What do you think? The Galactic Empire. To me, this is the first defeat of the Galactic Empire. Sure. I'm sure it was expensive, too. Very expensive. Uh, I mean, like I said, all this came out before Rogue One. So... I don't consider to be Rogue One a defeat by the Empire because the Empire ended up firing the Death Star. Yes, it wiped out a good portion of the planet, but the victory was not achieved by the Republic or by the Resistance, but it started to build up to their victory. It set in motion certain events. Uh A minor battle was won when they got... Uh, I guess, is it really a battle? It was a battle because the the, the space force basically came in and assisted the, you know, the evacuation of of at least one person that had the data. They got the signal out. Spoiler for Rogue One. They got the signal out. You know, they handed off the data, chip, crystal, whatever you call it, uh, before being sabered violently and thrown about. By Vader. Uh, yeah, in one of the best scenes ever. Um, and they got the, the stuff out. That was you know my, a minor battle one, and I guess the major battle in the war was the first Death Star being destroyed. The way that 
I view it. The Rogue One, they lost the battle, but they strategically passed off information to help win the upcoming battle with the Death Star. To me, episode six marks the end of the war because the second Death Star is destroyed. The Emperor is dead for all we know. Vader has been redeemed as Anakin and the Galactic Empire is in shambles. So it has fallen and the Republic has risen back up. Well, it's now possible for it to come back. Well, like I said, we're not going to, we talk about seven, eight, and nine just as a fun topic, but when we were doing our research on this, yeah. seven, eight, and nine had not come out yet. So I can't put that into context. I was just leaving, I was just leaving it vague. Yes. Because as everybody knows, Rise of Skywalker is going to have a certain key person, which in my opinion is the true villain of the Star Wars saga. Say what you will about Vader. In my opinion, the true villain of the this whole Star Wars saga has always been Emperor Palpatine. Starth Sidious. Number eight is the death of the mentor. Uh, the hero must confront his own mortality and face the world on his own. This is when Obi-Wan sacrifices himself to save Luke and his friends. Luke must prove he is ready to use the Force on his own. I don't remember a movie before this, or I don't remember watching a movie up until this movie where the hero was cut down. I don't recall of a movie that the good guy died. Mm -hmm. What about you? Do you remember anything like that? No. Um, doesn't mean I didn't, but um, it was well said in the documentary The Legacy Revealed, Star Wars, um, that often, you know, you have to lose the mentor. You know, they have to die or go away or whatnot. Uh, in some way, they must be lost before you can realize that you have the opportunity to realize that they live on in you. That's um, a good way of putting it. Um, I know everybody always questions their own mortality. Uh, people do question their parents' mortality. Like, to me, my father is one of my biggest mentors there will come a point in time when he is not around anymore. And I'm just hoping that I can live up to what he has taught me. And once we lose that, there's still a part of us. Number nine, apotheosis, death and rebirth. The hero dies a physical death or dies to the self to live in the spirit. He or she enters a state of divine knowledge, love, compassion, and bliss. This occurs during the trench run uh, the attack on the Death Star. Luke lets go of his conscious self and uses the Force along with Obi-Wan reaching out to him and hits the exhaust port with a tor with a proton torpedo that ultimately leads to the destruction of the Death Star. Hmm. I don't know about that one, but um, I definitely see that with uh, Vader in the final scene of episode six where um, you know Vader becomes himself again for the last time while he's while he's alive, while he becomes Anakin, yeah, he becomes yeah. Anakin comes back, um, and well, when he passes away, he gives he's been given the he, he is given the hero's burial on a funeral pyre. He's, his body is burned, um, flesh and machine. Yep, 
he dies he dies a physical death and um he became, he he basically goes off and you know he loses his the dark side his dark you know the the cyborg body and becomes one with the force okay yeah those are the two references um like i said i when i put this list together i was thinking a new hope in mind more than any other mm -hmm. film because it's just my default film to go to but that's the exact same method works for episode six return of the jedi hmm. all right number 11 outside help or rescue uh this is just as the hero may need guides and assistance at the start of the quest they often need rescuers to bring them back to everyday life especially if that person has been wounded or weakened by the experience uh, best example of this one that I could think for A New Hope is during the Death Star battle, Luke is able to get a clear shot of the Death Star's exhaust port only after Han Solo returns in the, with the Millennium Falcon to destroy the TIE Fighters following him through the trench. And because the TIE Fighters were destroyed, it knocked Vader off into space. And, An yeah. Another good example of this is in Empire Strikes Back when Luke has been injured by one of the, um, I guess, natives, I guess the best word for it. <laughs> and Han ends up having to save him with a tom-tom. Because he cuts the... He, oh, okay. Because he cuts him open. He cuts the tom-tom open with a lightsaber and puts Luke inside to keep him warm while he builds a shelter. I thought you were talking about Endor. But yeah, yeah the... Uh... No, it was on the... Um, Episode five, mm -hmm. Empire. It was on Hoth, the ice planet. Yep. Yeah, that was. What was that? Oh, I used to know what those are called. It starts with a W. Anyway, Wampus. Wampus. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, number eleven, the ultimate boon, the achievement of the goal or the fulfillment of the quest. All the previous steps serve to prepare and purify the hero for this step. This is achieved when Luke destroys the Death Star and saves the Rebel base from certain destruction. Which would have happened if they hadn't gone to the Death Star? What, what would happen if they never went? <laughs> well, that's one of those good hypothetical things because if they never went to the Death Star, the Millennium Falcon would never have been captured. The GPS tracking would never have been put on the Millennium Falcon. It never would have been found on Yavin. Beacon, yeah. Tracking beacon. Yeah. Yes. So that's a good hypothetical what if, but I think Lucas had those events plan out in the film and in his mind because, like I said, it sets up five and six. So, yep. Another good example of that is with the ultimate boon is ultimate victories achieved in episode six when vader throws down emperor palpatine down the shaft the power shaft or core shaft whatever you want to call it he ends up getting destroyed and the empire is gone according to the movies huh. the 12th and final process that I can think of when I think of the hero's journey, according to Campbell, is the return of the hero. The hero returns from the journey with the elixir or wisdom gained from the quest. He must find a way to share this gift 
to help everyone in the ordinary world. In the last few minutes of 77 Star Wars A New Hope, Luke returns to the Rebel base as a hero and receives a ward and, res- and recognition. This also applies in Episode 6. There's a celebration on Endor with the destruction of the Death Star, the fall of the Empire. And all the planets, really. Yeah. Especially I mean, Corson. Yeah. The special edition shows, um, you know, Coruscant. It shows Naboo. It shows a lot of the planets celebrating by the fact that the Empire is gone. Mm-hmm. And you also see Anakin's Force Ghost next to Yoda and Obi-Wan. Yep. So the there are several versions of the hero's uh, journey, and many stories um, include only a few of the stages that I'd spoke about. Other movies that come to mind for the hero's journey are the following. I think of uh, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Hunger Games, superhero films. I mean, you got Batman, you got Spider-Man, you got Green Lantern. I had to throw that in there just because <laughs> I needed a laugh. And <laughs> the most recent one, Avengers Endgame, of the hero's journey. Because yeah. when I think of the hero's journey for Avengers yes. Endgame... I'm actually, yeah, I mean, one, you know, you could think of it from Thanos' view. I also think of it from Iron Man, from the very first Iron Man film to everything that's happened to him to Avengers Endgame. So just to recap the 12 concepts and thoughts that I have with Joseph Campbell's ideas of the hero's journey. The steps, per se, the hero's journey. Yes. Number one is the call to adventure. Number two, refusal of the call. Number three, mentor, figure, slash supernatural aid. Number four, crossing the first threshold. Number five, test allies and enemies. Number six, meeting with the goddess. Number seven is the belly of the whale. Number eight, the death of the mentor. Number nine, apotheosis. Number 10, outside help or rescue. Number 11, the ultimate boon. Number 12, return of the hero. Okay, Uh, while doing research and getting notes for this particular section of the legacy revealed, I came across something else that I found interesting on Google. Um, Evidently, this got posted like 2008 to 2010, somewhere in between there. It's um, a different way to watch Star Wars. It's actually called the Star Wars Machete. Uh, You watch all six films, but it has a different viewing order. The viewing order for this Machete version is four, five, one, two, three, then six. Uh, The reason for this, it presents the prequels as flashbacks and allows the viewers not only to track Luke's journey, but to see the parallels of Luke and Anakin. Uh, For an example, episode four, Luke destroys the Death Star. Episode one, uh, Anakin destroys the trade ship. Episode two, Anakin loses the hand. Episode five, and Luke loses the hand. You go to episode three, it's Anakin's downfall. At episode six, it's Anakin's rebirth, so to speak. 
the return. So wait, say that order again. It was four, five, one, two, three, six. Yep. Because when you said that, it sounded like you were interleaving them, interweaving them. Well, because you go A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back. You watch those. Mm -hmm. Then you go to The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, mm -hmm. and then the final one is Return of the Jedi. Now, if you want to go for a 2019, you go four, five, one, two, three, six, seven, eight, then nine. Now, if you want to watch this in true saga order, I hope I get this right, but in true saga order, you go one, two, three, Han Solo, Rogue One, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Did I get that right? No, I'm not going to correct it. <laughs> what did I miss? No. Um, I would just watch it in chronological order. In, 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 in the universe. Well, that's what I just said, because you go one, two, three, then you have Solo, because Solo came out a couple of years, or takes place a couple of years after uh, Revenge. Uh -huh. Then you have Rogue, Rogue One. One, and then Rogue One leads into four. Mm -hmm. Five, six. Five, six. And then you have the new stuff, which takes place. Doesn't exist. Right. But I'm saying, though, if you wanted to, it takes place <laughs> 40 years, 30, 40 years after episode six. Yeah. Uh, there's interesting way to watch Star Wars. Some people have said that you can actually watch Star Wars with four, five, then you go two, three, then six. Because some people have said, and you, you can search this on Google, episode one does not play a significant role in anything that happens. It's a nice ride. Yeah. Because racing. The, the, what I read online, they said that there is nothing that you cannot figure out by watching two and three that takes place in one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're, that's going to go ahead and wrap up uh, the section about the Star Wars Legacy Revealed. Uh, we got off topic a little bit. Hopefully you had fun. Hopefully you liked this episode. Uh, it was fun to make. We had to spend a lot of time getting research on and it was just an overall good, in-depth, behind-the-scenes help uh, help you make you think about what George Lucas was thinking about when he wrote A New Hope and some of the other films. Um, like what Mark was saying, uh, he, he got a lot of influence from Joseph Campbell. And like what also he was, Mark was saying, that... Campbell had said that Lucas was one of his greatest students. Lucas is very good at facts, is very good at research and knowledge. World oh, building. Yes. I mean, and this is what I don't know. And if I could have a five-minute conversation with George Lucas, this would be my first question. You knew Star Wars was going to be big after episode four. You didn't know up until episode four. But after episode four, did you ever think it was going to be this big, that you were going to have a total of six films, that you were going to have over 20 video games, nine countless films. comics. Nine. Yes. Nine. Well, remember, Lucasfilm is not part of 7, 8, and 9 to a point. It's all Disney. Right. So. Uh -huh. 
I mean, Lucas gave creative ideas to Disney and was, wrote them stories and concepts. That was Mickey Mouse, by the way. <laughs> but Disney decided to go their own different way. And you can read about that because Lucas recently talked about it on Google. Um, oh, the regret? Yes. About selling to the something slavers? Uh, we're not going to bash Disney like that on here. That's what he no, said. I don't care. We're not going to bash Disney. I don't need Disney coming out me, it, coming at me for me talking about Star Wars without their approval. Bob Iger was the one that uh, had some regret about not going into, not not preparing George before going into that meeting. By the way, yeah, it was in his book. Yeah. Okay, so like I said, I hope everybody enjoyed it. It was fun to uh, get research on. And thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody, for listening for today's episode of the in-depth conversation of Star Wars. Like I said earlier, um, we broke it out into three different sections. We talked about the documentary of Star Wars, The Legacy Revealed. We talked about the Empire of Dreams. And we also talked about what Star Wars teaches us about technology, which is also based off of the Star Wars tech documentary. I just kind of took it at a deeper level. Uh, like I said, I hope you enjoy and thank you for listening.